There were huge numbers of children going out, which is wonderful. Uh, it's, it's glorious to see church nearly full, the church building nearly full with uh, families and lots of them children of different ages. What an exciting thing. Who said the church was dead? It's not. The, the, right across this country, the church is like our own. We're not by no means the only one, not even in Winchester. God's on the move and his people are vibrant and alive. And it's good to have a chance to celebrate this morning those wonderful baptisms of people becoming Christians, getting their lives turned around, meeting God, finding the grace of God and the love of God changing them. What a great and encouraging thing it was. Wonderful. Just sitting, listening to it. Loved it. And uh, I've gonna, I'm going to speak to you for about half an hour or so. Um, I, what I'm going to be doing, uh, we'll need a little bit of explaining. I hope I can catch your attention if you're a visitor because we're, uh, we have a series called uh, Heading Upstream, Navigating Our Culture, which is based in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. I don't know how much you've ever read of Daniel. You've probably heard of him unless you, maybe not everybody has, but you know, maybe Sunday school or something, Daniel in the Lion's Den. But, but there's a whole book of 12 chapters in the Old Testament called Daniel, and he's the hero of it. <clears throat> and uh, the context is a very real situation. It was real history. He was a real person. It's set way back in about, well, it actually, it can be more precise than about. It, it's the period of history for Daniel is 605 BC to 536 BC. He lived for about 80 plus years he was, uh, his country was Israel. He lived in Jerusalem. And that country was overrun by a huge empire called the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was about 15, and he and a group of his friends were taken captive from Jerusalem, which was destroyed or nearly destroyed, and taken to Babylon, which is basically, was basically where Baghdad is today in Iraq, around that area, nearly a thousand miles away. And uh, Daniel and his friends were worshippers of the one true living God, the I Am, the God we're worshipping this morning. Uh, uh, but that confidence probably took a bit of a knock when they found their country overrun by the Babylonians. They go to this huge city of Babylon, and it was a massive place by their standards and even by our standards it was uh, a huge city. Think of Rome at the centre of the Roman Empire, and you've got something similar. Babylon at the centre of the Babylonian Empire, vast empire from probably nearly India across to nearly Egypt. And, uh, and it, it, this huge city uh, was devoted to the worship of false gods and idols. The Babylonians worshipped all sorts of different gods and idols. And they seemed to be doing very well, thank you. Whereas the people who worship the living true God, Yahweh, I am, weren't doing so well. So that itself was probably quite a challenge. And uh, then you're living in this culture, trying to cope with its very dominant um, aspects of it, very, very much imposing them on you, that their names changed to uh, names that reflected the gods of the Babylonians. And they were brought into the service of the king because Daniel this is, and his friends were pretty bright young guys and the king wanted the best and the brightest in his service so they came into the service of this pagan king and uh, as I say they were probably by that time about 17 or 18 but that was where they were to spend their lives and Daniel spent probably nearly 80 years in Babylon 
And the part we're going to look at today, which is Daniel chapter 4, it's probably been 20 to 25 years in this service. Now, in this time, lots of things have happened. Some of us were looking, if you were here two weeks ago, at the story of the fiery furnace in chapter 3. That's Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their testing time. You, think, you might think, well, why wasn't Daniel involved in that? Did he compromise? Well, of course he didn't. It's, historians think Daniel was away ruling some other part of the empire on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel is quite senior now in the civil service of Babylon and he, he was probably away somewhere hundreds of miles away and maybe missed the worst pressures of that time. But he's now in chapter 4 back in Babylon. And we're now in his timeline, his lifetime line. He might be in his mid-40s. And uh, the king is still Nebuchadnezzar. I hope you get this and come alive. Remember, this is real history. Now, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for about 43 years. He ruled this vast empire, really powerful. The equivalent, as I said, to the Roman Empire, perhaps in later ages, or the British Empire, dare we say it. So that's the sort of thing. And, and he's ruling there. He's a very powerful man, Nebuchadnezzar. And he has built Babylon up. It was big anyway. Now it is huge. The, Babylon, the city of Babylon had a, a wall around it that was 60 miles long. And the wall was 32 feet wide. You could get two chariots side by side round the whole 60 miles. A bit like an M25 round the, the city. And it was nearly 75 to 100 feet high. And he made this wall round the whole city. He'd also built a new palace for himself. And he had built something that some of us may have heard about, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was full of the most exotic and beautiful plants from the whole world, from the tropics and all sorts of places. It was a wonder. It was an area about 400 square feet and maybe 100 feet high. And it were terraces uh, where all these different plants grew. And they were watered by pumps bringing the water from the Euphrates. And Nebuchadnezzar and his wives would be able to wander up there, walking up gentle slopeways, and there was these gorgeous gardens with butterflies and things in them if they could, and it was, it was just a wonder of the world. And, and Nebuchadnezzar had built all this stuff. And archaeologists have found the remains of ancient Babylon. And a curious thing is that most of the bricks have got the name Nebuchadnezzar stamped on them. He had done amazing things, and he had built most of this city. We're going to now pick up the story in chapter 4. I can't read it all to you because it's too long, but I can tell you it. Nebuchadnezzar had probably already got some knowledge of God. Obviously, uh, he'd done that from, from even going over to Jerusalem and conquering it, but he's pretty despising of it. But actually, that despising had been shaken up a little bit. Uh, So in chapter 2, he had an extraordinary dream, which Daniel interpreted, and that gave him some cause for thought and taking God seriously. And then in chapter 3, which we read the other week, there's the whole thing of the fiery furnace where he's still building building idols for people to worship, but Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego survive his his execution or attempted execution of them. He throws them into this furnace and, and, and there's a, another figure with them, the Son of God, with them. And, and then they come out and they survive. And he's very impressed, but he still doesn't have any personal faith in God. Chapter 4 is a very interesting chapter. 
It's a sort of personal testimony by, of all people, King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And if you've got it open, you might want to glance at it. But I cannot read it all, but I can try and give you a flavor. And then I want to draw out some lessons for us. If you're here this morning, you might already be asking yourself, why are we listening to ancient history? What good's that to us? Well, listen, the Bible is full of narrative. It, that means stories. Real stories of real people meeting with God, God speaking to them, having dealings in their lives, very flawed people sometimes, lots of errors and mistakes. They don't get everything right by any means. Even the heroes, such as David and Abraham and and, and Moses make mistakes. You know, they all are flawed in one way, but they meet with God. God speaks to them. They get revelation of God and their stories are written down. And, and the Bible depends on the fact that this is fundamentally true. Uh, even things like the resurrection. You know, the Bible would be keen to prove to you these things happened. And out of those experiences and the, uh, the encounters these people have with God, we learn about God. As we read the inspired Bible, which is these stories recorded we find the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. And that would be my prayer for this morning, that he'll do exactly that as we look at this story. Because what we're going to look at is, in effect, a personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. So it starts in chapter 4 with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar is writing his own account, actually, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And now he tells the dream story. And we could call it the dream tree. I'm going to have to tell it to you. Nebuchadnezzar said, I had this dream where I saw an amazing tree, huge tree. When I was trying to imagine this, I thought it's probably, if you've ever seen the film Avatar, there's this big tree in that film. Maybe it was a bit like that. This huge tree which had all sorts of things living in it. Animals and birds living in it, fruits all over it. Glorious tree. And then suddenly a voice comes from heaven, cut it down. And this tree is cut down and the branches are stripped off and the fruit is scattered and all the, plant, all the animals and birds fly away. And it says, but, but bind the stump so, the st so you don't actually root it out. Keep it a, a potential life in it. Just put a bar around the, a, a, a binding around the stump and leave it for seven times. This is a mysterious sort of language. And then the language of the dream changes to talk about the tree as a person. Let him be sent out into the fields. Let him be like an animal in the fields until he learns that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. 
And uh, Belshazzar, um, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar says, well, Belshazzar, which is Daniel, what's that mean? And Daniel comes in and, and he's nervous, and you would be. He says, oh boy. He said, uh, I wish this dream was about your enemies, my Lord. He's very courteous. He's very gracious in a way. I wish it was about your enemies and not about you. But then he's brave and he says, this is what it means. And he says, you are the tree. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. And your kingdom is this great thing which covers everywhere. Everybody's fed by it and so on and so forth. And there's a decree from heaven that you are going to be cut down and you're going to become mad like an animal. You're going to forage in the fields like an animal and be thrown out from human um, sort of social uh, inter- uh, intercourse. You won't be thrown out. For, people put you out outside. They won't know how to handle you until you come to a point where you recognize that God, the one true living God, is the God of all the earth. Let's pick it up later on. As Daniel comes to the end of his interpretation, he makes an appeal to Belshazzar. I'll pick it up um, about verse 25. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, gives them to every wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. And then he says, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So, so, so Daniel says, not only am I going to warn you, I'm going to appeal to you. Please listen to this warning and respond and repent. We'll talk about that in a moment. Change and maybe it can be avoided, the judgment. Then it tells us this, Belshazzar tells us, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, um, Nebuchadnezzar tells us, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven till his hair grew like feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claws of a bird. And it says this. Let's read a few more verses. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the time, at the time, same time, that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to the throne, became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, 
and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What an amazing story. We need 20 minutes or so. I hope the children will be able to come back uh, just after half past today. What an amazing story. And you know, one of the first attacks often is, well, is it true? <laughs> you know, and some historians, some archaeologists will say, well, actually the Babylonian records don't mention this incident. No, but they do mention something that is very, very interesting. The Babylonian records are very thorough, and they tell you everything Nebuchadnezzar did for his 43 years ruling. They are boring, really, because they're a list. He did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. But there is a four-year period near the end of his life when they specifically say he did nothing. In fact, they spell it out. He didn't do this, he didn't do that, he didn't do the other. He didn't even worship in his God's temple. He didn't make any sacrifices to the gods. It's very detailed. Now, you need to know that most empires are pretty proud, like our own would have been. And so the, the official Babylonian records would not record weakness and sickness in their kings. They just didn't do that. You don't admit weakness and sickness. However, because they want to be accurate, they give us a slab of his reign near the end where he did absolutely nothing. In fact, he wasn't present even in the temple worship. And that is mysterious because he was a very active king. But also, we must not disrespect our Bibles. These are ancient documents. This is also an authentic document. And it tells us from a different perspective, that of Daniel and the perspective of God's people, a bit more detail about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So I have absolutely no doubt, as I speak to you this morning, that this is a real-life incident. And it explains the mysterious gap in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and we have the details from a Christian perspective. But what can we learn for us this morning? I think there are three things that we learn from Nebuchadnezzar that apply to all of us right here, 21st century Britain, with the same God over us. The first point is this, heaven rules. If we could put that one up. If you could look at verse 26, it's going to go up on the screen, I think. There's a key phrase, you will come through, you will turn back, you will be healed, whatever way you want to put it, and your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now this is a powerful, powerful point, and it's the theme of the chapter. Look at another verse, verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declared a verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to whoever he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, this is a fundamental truth, but it's also a difficult truth. The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign over all. And the thing that Nebuchadnezzar had to get to was an acknowledgement that God is in charge. God is bigger than anything I can understand. Heaven rules. Now, you might ask the question, a lot of people do, it's a perfectly reasonable question. How is God sovereign over all? And yet the Bible also tells us that men and women are free agents. Nebuchadnezzar's a free agent. They're not coerced in any way. 
And actually, they follow the inclinations of their own hearts, as Nebuchadnezzar does. They follow their own choices and live with the consequences of those choices, as Nebuchadnezzar does. And in fact, they are fully accountable for the choices they make, as Nebuchadnezzar is. God, in a way, punishes or judges him for his pride, his arrogance, and his cruelty. And so, you know, how does that square with the fact that God is sovereign over all and gives them the kingdoms to whoever he wishes? You want the answer this morning, don't you? So I can't give you one. The truth is, I cannot give you a satisfactory philosophical answer to balance those two things. I can tell you what I think, which I briefly will. I believe those things are both true. That God is sovereign, and yet we as human beings are free agents, uncoerced, and accountable for our actions to God. And if you say, well, how do you square that circle, John? I say to you, the only answer I can give you is somehow it is in God himself. Because I think we have a very small view of God. I don't think any of us get it. But if God is the creator of all things, which I believe he is, the Bible tells us he is outside time and space. The Bible tells us he knows the end from the beginning. He is the I am. He's not an I was and I will be. He's I am. He lives in an ever-present nowness. The whole thing happens at once for God. God lives with a nowness to everything. I know our brains blow out a fuse on it because that's not how we are. But God is the creator of all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. And I believe what he says. And he tells me two things are true. One, that everything is ultimately in his control. He is sovereign. Heaven rules. Two, that men and women are accountable for their actions and are free in their choices and need to hear and obey what he says to them. They are not robots. Now, I believe seeing and understanding that without just arguing with it in your brain is something of what real breakthrough happens with Nebuchadnezzar. That he, he gets that the God is in control and somehow he is answerable to God. And I tell you what, as a Christian, the, the fact that God is sovereign is actually a great comfort. If you believe this, it brings some breakthroughs in your own attitude to life in your own peace amidst the wars and revolutions and turmoils of our world amidst the brexits and trumps and terrorists and democracies and dictatorships amidst all the scheming powerful people and all the self-seeking people God is still overall in charge he is ruling still God is still on his throne amen heaven rules and in the end he will bring it to the conclusion he chooses. He is working in and through the events around us for his ultimate long-term purposes. And what will be evident in the end is that everyone will bow their knee and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But we can do it voluntarily now. But the day will come, and Nebuchadnezzar actually does it voluntarily in a funny way. He does, not in a funny way, he does it. <laughs> but, but we can do what he did. But one day, if we haven't chosen to, we will bow before God and acknowledge not only that he has been there all the time, but he has worked all things according to the counsel of his will, and he is just and true in all his ways. So we need to get right with him now. And the answer is 
to raise your eyes to heaven, which is what Nebuchadnezzar does, and that is the beginning of sanity. You see, some people say that faith is a form of insanity. I think I saw something from Dawkins, as ever, this week about that. I can't remember the exact details. Try not to bother too much with him. But... um, but basically, you know, it's because people are afraid of the dark. They believe fairy tales about God or something like that. Typical statement. Now, the, the reality is true sanity comes when you recognize God is Lord of all. That's the beginnings of sanity. Raise your eyes towards heaven because heaven rules. And that is the beginning of sanity to this man and to all of us. Jesus challenged us. Let's look at a couple of things briefly before we move on. Look at Luke 12, verse 15. Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, we'll leave it up for a moment. Jesus said this at the beginning of a story about a rich man who had lots and lots of harvest and said, oh, I'm going to buy, build bigger barns to store all my harvest. I'm so well off. I'm going to do this. I'm going to build this. I'm going to do that. And then at the end, God says the next screen to him, please. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Jesus brings the same challenge we find in Nebuchadnezzar's chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, that we can be so obsessed with the things around us, so arrogant about man and his achievements, so confident that we got it all sorted out, that we ignore God, and then one day we will have to face that God. And one day we will wish that we had given more attention to him than to just our material possessions. Our lives are more than the abundance of our possessions. Our lives are much more than just what we own, just the material things around us. There is a God, we have a spirit, we are answerable to God for our lives. And the danger is that like Nebuchadnezzar, if we are fairly comfortable and prosperous, we get quite proud and self-centered. That's what happens to him. And it's all too easy to think that if there is a God, he's probably pleased with me. And in any case, I can sort everything out myself. I don't really need to worry about God. I can build this city, says Nebuchadnezzar. I can do anything. I can make wonderful gardens in the desert, like the hanging gardens. I can do anything. And at a smaller level, many of us also, sadly, can live like that. But Jesus says, don't let that fool you. Don't let that fool you. It's more important that you get rich towards God than just rich with things. You need to understand heaven rules. Let's move on quickly because the second thing I want to talk about is God's grace. This is quite an amazing demonstration of grace, this whole chapter 4 of Daniel. Because Nebuchadnezzar does not really deserve what happens to him at all. In fact, He seems to have patience and grace shown to him, even in this chapter. Let's look at verse 27 again. Daniel, when he tells him about the dream, says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. That's quite interesting too, because that's the tension with God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because a clear implication here is... 
by Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. If you will respond to this warning, you will avert the judgment that has been decreed. God is giving you an opportunity to change. Now, there's a spiritual religious word called repent, which basically means change, means to turn around, to do a U-turn. And in effect, that's what Daniel is challenging Nebuchadnezzar to do. Humble yourself and change, and this won't be happening to you. Now, having heard that very real warning, based on the very frightening dream, which we've already seen he had, Nebuchadnezzar then, in the grace of God, has a whole year in which to act on this. It's 12 months later before things happen. So for a whole year, he could have changed. For a whole year, he could have turned from his pride and his arrogance and his cruelty. He could have looked to God. He could have begun to worship God or sought Daniel out and asked Daniel more about God and try and followed up on what had happened to him. But actually, he doesn't. And it's at the end of another 12 months that the judgment finally strikes. Let me just say to you, Every one of us, not only those of us who aren't yet Christians, but those of us who are. When God wants to get you doing something, when God wants to teach you, call you into his service, convert you, persuade you, he always starts gently, I would argue. I don't think he starts using the heavy tactics that some of us put down to him. He prefers to use words. God's word is his main tool of discipline. God's word is his main tool of encouragement and challenge. God loves to speak to us first and foremost from his word, preached as well or read or maybe internalized in some way. That is always his approach. He would rather reason with us. He would rather warn us. He would rather woo us than have to threaten us. He appeals to us. He likes to plant a seed in our heart. He's looking for our cooperation. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a wake-up call. It was a wake-up call that shook him. Look at verse 5, if you could put it up for me, please. He says, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. He had a pretty frightening experience. This dream shook him up quite a bit. We can have things like that. We can have things that really get our attention. Maybe a circumstance. Maybe it is a dream, literally, or an experience, or a coincidence, or a near miss. Or maybe somebody says something to us that really we know God's challenged us or speaking to us. A a friend, maybe, or even a stranger. Something we hear in a preach. There's endless list of things that can get our attention and be a wake-up call in our lives. But in Nebuchadnezzar's case and in our case, we need to respond to that. He needed to respond. It's one thing to be frightened. It's one thing to be disturbed. But what are you going to do about it? Now, they're not always bad things. I mean, in a funny way, the dream is is not, it's just a scary dream. I mean, we can have good things. I would say last weekend, we had an amazing time with Angela Kemp. It was a stirring time. It was something that spoke to us. It was something that might have disturbed some of us. Might have thought, whoa, I don't know quite what she's saying. I don't quite like that style. It just disturbed the surface, but we knew God was in it. But the question is, what do we do now? It's one thing to have a bad dream and then get over it, which is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He gets a rather scary interpretation of the dream. This is about you. You're going to be mad for a while unless you repent and put your life right and turn to God. And I'm sure he took Daniel seriously. Daniel had a good track record of interpreting dreams. But 
actually he still forgets about it. Over the next 12 months, he gets on with life, puts it on the back burner, it goes back to comfort zone and he builds another wall or he builds another palace and he's sitting there and he's pulling his braces out, whatever they did. You know, wonderful, what an amazing man I am. Oh, another one now, look at that one. Oh, I don't know where I can stop, I'm too good for myself, you know. And all this stuff. And then wallop, it happens. But he's had a warning, he's had a dream, he's had an interpretation of a dream and he's had 12 months to think about it. We could shake our heads, but what about us, friends? What about us? I mean, some of you, what have you been to two alphas, three alphas? Have you committed your life to Jesus yet? Maybe something happened that scared you. We had some beautiful stories this morning, some powerful stories of incidents. But these people responded. Mandy responded when stuff happened out there in Portugal. Others we heard from, Sam, uh, Aaron, remember the stories, but they responded. Things happened to all of us to get our attention. We feel, wow, maybe there is a God. And then we could, oh, probably it's coincidence. And, and so on and so on. And you turn from it. And that is really what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a challenge for us. I think a lot of people today in our culture, if you like, are at the bad dream stage. People are bewildered. They're worried. They think, what is going on in life? What is going on in my country? And they think, what, are, what, are, what does it mean today? What's life mean? You know, I'm told at one level, don't believe in a God. It's all a result of blind chance. You're just a result of blind chance. You're just an evolved higher animal. There's no God. It's all chance-driven, blind chance-driven. And then on the other hand, you're told, you can have what you like. You can name your dream. You can live for your dream. You can be the most important person in the world. What are we talking about? What, what, it's all puff and nonsense, both sides. You know, you think... You know, and don't worry about anything. Just choose what you want to do. Your own choices are altogether paramount. You know, we're beguiled into living totally for ourselves and to please ourselves, and yet so much is wrong, and so much seems to be going wrong. No way, it's like a bad dream. It's confusing. Well, the answer is, seek God. I'm telling you now, that's the answer. (laughs) That's like Daniel. I'm speaking like Daniel. Yes, it is. You're right. It's nonsense. It it doesn't all fit together. We're told lies, frankly, on the right and the left. And the whole thing is confusing. And actually, we know there's something that's wrong. We know there's something wrong in us, let alone in other people. Well, there is an answer. Turn to God. Seek him. We can find an answer in him. But let's heed his mercy that leads us while, while we can and speaks to us while, while we can. Let's heed his mercy. Because actually, God's grace and mercy drives him, God, to up the ante on Nebuchadnezzar. You see, the cruelest thing would have been to leave Nebuchadnezzar alone and let him go to judgment. But actually, the kindness of God means God says he's not listened to my gentle appeal. Take away his wits. He's going to be mad for four years or whatever length of time it was. Now, you can say, that's cruel. Well, it's only what was warned, and he, he's merciful, actually, because God's got an eye on his eternal salvation. God is knowing that in the end, he's going to have to play hardball to get Nebuchadnezzar to turn around and be saved. And, you know, sometimes that is true of us. The very mercy of God will chase you down and corner you until you admit that you need him. So it's pretty wise to, to, to respond early on, in my opinion. But 
like you, most of us are too stupid to do that. I'm like that as well. And often God has to corner us before we'll turn around and face him. But you can avoid that, and Nebuchadnezzar could have. Let's finish with the third section. I want to talk about personal faith. Because this fascinates me about Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, you see, you can see a bit of a journey with Nebuchadnezzar if you uh, follow the story, which obviously we've been doing in our series. In chapter 2, look at this carefully, this verse. When Daniel's interpreted the dream for him, the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Just look at the phrase. Surely your God is the God of gods. Then there was chapter 3 with the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego miraculously surviving the furnace. Let's look at this verse, 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him to fight the king's command, willing to give up their lives rather than serve any god except their own god. Do you see what he's doing? He's actually, actually treating God fairly seriously, but he says to Daniel, your God. Or he says, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And interestingly, miracles alone did not turn him round. He'd seen miracles. He saw the huge miracle of the three men surviving the burning, fiery furnace. He was impressed about God, but there was no personal engagement, no repentance. That's turning from his old way of life. No personal, this is my God. I want to believe in him. I want to follow him. No personal faith. He certainly believed God existed, And he believed that God would turn up for Daniel and his friends. In fact, he found it very useful to ask for Daniel's help, ask your God what the dream means, when he had a tough time. I wonder how near that is to some of you. Can I say it with love, but also challenge? Do you actually on your journey think, well, I I do actually now believe in God. I can see all the stuff. I heard it this morning. It's great. And, and I do like it when Christians pray for me. You know, I've got a tough time at work. I'm not very well. Will you pray for me? Now, I think that's wonderful. That's wonderful. But do you know you could know God for yourself? You can have personal knowledge of God. The gospel is about you knowing God personally. You. Every one of you. Not your God the God of Hope Church, the God of John Groves and Steve Chick and Rob and... I won't start naming people. (laughs) I have. I've started. I'll stop. Um, You know, not that. Your God. You can know him. And that is the big thing that happens in chapter 4. He ends up with a personal testimony, a personal faith in God. Look at verse 37. Put it up for me. Thank you. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Isn't that amazing? Not your God, not the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify God. That is amazing. And that can happen for every, every one of you. A personal faith in God. His personal faith. He'd realized that everything depended on his response to God, not just the vicarious experience through Daniel and others. 
He had found the personal truth of this words of Jesus. Can you put up Matthew 10, verse 39? Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake, said Jesus, will find it. You see, in the end, it gets very, very personal. Are you prepared to give your life to Jesus? You, only you can do that. No one else can do it for you. Daniel could warn Nebuchadnezzar. He could interpret the dream with grace and care. But in the end, it was Nebuchadnezzar's call what he did with that. And you know, that's a fundamental truth of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Nobody else can be saved for you. That's why baptism is so important. It's a personal decision, their own repentance and faith. It can't be done for you. To be honest, there's well intentions behind those who have baptized babies. It's well intentioned, I understand that. But you cannot make a faith choice for someone. They have to choose to follow Jesus. They really do. You have to. You need personally. You might come to all the alphas in the world, but you've got in the end to make the the call yourself. You've got to take the step yourself and say, now I believe in God. Let's look at this question that Jesus asked, Mark eight thirty six. What good is, is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? That is a fundamental question that, in a sense, is the one you could say challenged Nebuchadnezzar in the end, because he was gaining the whole world almost literally. But it's one for each one of us here in this room. What do we see as the top priority in life? Have we got it that we need to see our souls saved? We need to meet with God and meet him. Now, as I finish, and I am finishing, I want to emphasize something very strongly again. The God we're talking about is a God of great grace. Because I understand that often the problem when you talk to people is they say, I'm not good enough. Well, I'm not like you lot. I can't do it. Or I, I feel I've fouled up so much. I, I once made a professional fight, went back on it. I, I, you know, blah, 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 blah. They give you the list of all the things. And they say, nothing, God won't save me. God could not want me anymore. Let me tell you this. I think one of the reasons this is in the Bible is to show us the grace of God. Have you thought who Nebuchadnezzar was? Think about it. He is a pagan king. He worships gods. He has killed thousands of people. He has destroyed Jerusalem, for goodness sake. He has overrun Israel. He has taken young lives into captivity and disrupted their whole lives, apart from the people he's killed. He is a cruel man. He is a tyrant. He is a bully. He doesn't deserve saving. And he's saved, as far as I can see. If God has grace for Nebuchadnezzar, he's got grace for you. No one is too far away. Whoever will may come. You may have a long list of sins. I doubt as if you've done as many horrible things as Nebuchadnezzar. How many people have you, you put on a spike over their home? It's not very nice, is it? He seemed to do that regularly. It was a pastime. So... so and yet, and yet, God has grace and mercy towards him. It's almost outrageous. I want to end with a quote from someone I love reading. Now, I'm afraid this is 400 years old. I do love old English. It's Matthew Henry's commentary on these verses. 
And you've got to bear in mind that the information behind this is that Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't commit suicide because it's old English wording. You might think he did. He didn't. But Nebuchadnezzar died a few years after he was restored to the throne, after the four-year gap. That's the background. All right, this is what Matthew Henry writes. It was not long after this that Nebuchadnezzar ended his life and reign. Whether he continued in the same good mind that here he seems to be in, we are not told. If our charity may reach so far as to hope he did, we must admire free grace, by which he lost his wits for a while that he might save his soul forever. Now, I know I love it. I'm sorry, if you don't love it, don't worry about it. But I love the old way of writing. But what he's saying is, stop and think and admire free grace. What an amazing thing that God had grace and mercy for Nebuchadnezzar. But he's got it for you, every one of you. God is not determined to keep you out of heaven. He's determined to get you into heaven. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you. To pay the ultimate price that you might know God as your heavenly father. He's not trying to put barriers up to stop you getting there. He's pulling them down to get you in by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to have to finish, obviously. Let's stand.